I'd like to thank Bambi for supporting my podcast. HR managers ain't cheap. Salaries average $70,000 a year. That's why you need Bambi. So go to Bambi.com gold to schedule your free HR audit. On my last podcast, I went over the consumer price index, which for the first time this year didn't beat expectations. It actually matched expectations and certain aspects of the report came in slightly cooler than what the markets expected. I also discussed the perverse reaction in the gold market, which of course is now par for this bizarro course that we've been playing on. Gold rallied on the relief that the inflation numbers weren't worse than expected because from the traders' perspective, that might have meant that the Fed would delay its tightening cycle. And so anything that delays tightening is interpreted as being bullish for gold. And of course, the reverse is also true. If something makes tightening slightly more eminent, well, that's automatically a negative for gold. And that's exactly what happened on Thursday when we got the release of producer prices. And unlike consumer prices, the PPI did not break its streak of exceeding expectations because for the seventh month in a row, the PPI came out hotter than expected. And in June, the PPI shot up a full 1% during the month, which was more than the markets expected. The expectations for July were for the gain to only be 0.6. Now, of course, 0.6 is still a huge gain. Remember, this is just one month, but the markets thought that we couldn't possibly have another number as high as the June number. After all, right, it's transitory inflation. So at some point, the rate has to come down. Well, we ended up getting another 1% gain in July, not only exceeding expectations, but once again, exceeding the upper bound of the range of expectations, which went from a low of 0.3 to a high of 0.9. On a year-over-year basis, they were expecting the producer price index to go up by 7.3%. Instead, it rose by 7.8%. Also, looking at the other numbers, the month-over-month core, taking out food and energy. Again, last month, the core was up 1%. They were looking for a 0.5% increase in July. Instead, another 1% increase in the core. That means the year-over-year core, which was expected to be 5.6, came out at 6.2%. Also, if you dig down deeper and take out food, energy, and trade services, that was supposed to come in at 0.5, and instead it came in at 0.9. So beats across the board when it comes to the PPI, in fact, If you look at the year-to-date increase in producer prices, just so far in 2021, there, producer prices have risen by 7.8% in seven months. 
if you look at the increase year to date, that's the first seven months of the year, producer prices are already up by 6.4% in just seven months. So if you annualize those gains and extrapolate it for the entire 2021, producer prices will rise 11% in this year. Look, it's already a record increase since they began tracking, which doesn't include the 1970s. Apparently, this particular series does not go back to the 70s. But as far as it goes back, the year-over-year increase of 7.8 is already a record. But clearly, we're going to beat that record, certainly by the end of 2021. In fact, look at the numbers that we've seen so far for the first seven months of the year. We got 1.2 was the increase in January, followed by 0.7 in February, 0.8 in March, 0.7 in April, 0.8 in May, 1% in June, 1% in July. Does anything about that string of numbers suggest transitory? Does anything suggest that the trend is reversing and that we're seeing a reduction in the rate of increase of producer prices? Not at all. And what does this portend for consumer prices? Because year to date, consumer prices are lagging producer prices. And you get a lot of these companies that are coming out with earnings. A lot of them are citing big increases in their cost as a reason that they're not earning as much as analysts had expected. And that is because the producers have been dragging their feet when it comes to passing on the price increases to their customers. One of the reasons is because the producers also believed all the propaganda coming out of the government, the Fed, that the inflation was transitory. And so the producers figured, you know what, they'll just wait it out. They'll eat the higher costs for a little while because it's transitory. So why reprice all our products, risk upsetting our customers when we just have to grin and bear it for a few months of transitory inflation and then the prices will come back down and everything will be fine. Well, as time goes by and this narrative is not playing out, inflation, instead of being transitory and getting better, is persistent and getting worse. What you are going to see, and this is what I've been saying from the beginning, is the producers are going to throw in the towel on holding back on passing down the full cost increase to their customers. And so the consumer price index is going to catch up to the producer price index. Now, if you believe it doesn't, right, if producers are just going to absorb these higher costs indefinitely, that's very bad for corporate profits. The reality is the stock market is ignoring all of this data. The Dow Jones, the S&P finished the week in record territory on Friday. Both of those indexes closed at record highs, ignoring the margin pressures that are being put on companies by rising costs that are not being passed on. Now, of course, if the rising costs ultimately are passed on, which I believe they will, well, then that is going to mean consumer prices are going to be rising much faster, which will accelerate, in theory anyway, the Fed's tightening cycle. So however you want to look at increases in producer prices, if they don't pass them on to consumers, it's bearish for stocks. 
because margins go down and earnings go down. If they do pass on the increases, it should also be bearish for stocks because that means higher inflation at the consumer level, which means the Fed is going to be tightening more, which is also gonna be bearish for stocks. So either way, it's bearish for stocks, yet stocks don't care and they go up anyway. And I think the reason for this is because unlike currency traders or gold traders, I think the stock traders get it that the Fed is not going to take away the punch bowl, that none of these numbers really matter. The only number that really matters is the number of dollars that the Fed is going to continue to print, which is probably infinite. So people know that the Fed is not going to let the market go down. It's not really going to fight inflation. And so stock market investors don't want to get off this wave. They've been riding a wave of cheap money for so long. They're having so much fun that they couldn't even conceive of the ride coming to an end. So they are ignoring all of this hotter than expected inflation news. And this is not the only bad report we got on inflation since my last podcast. We got more. In fact, also on Thursday, when we got the hotter than expected PPI, the National Association of Home Builders confirmed that U.S. home prices are rising at their fastest pace in history. Year over year, the price of a single family home is up 22.9%. We've never seen that before, not even during the housing bubble. The median price now of a home in America is $357,900. That's a $66,800 increase over the prior year. But despite the fact that mortgage interest rates are at all-time record lows, affordability, thanks to rising prices, is also at an all-time record low. And another thing that's at an all-time record low is the premium that people pay for new homes relative to what they pay for existing homes. Meaning buying a used house is very close to the same price as buying a new house. It's as close as it's ever been. And that's because we're not getting new homes being built because the economy doesn't have the resources to construct them. The raw material prices are now so high, the labor costs are so high that it's very expensive to build, so they're not doing it. And so if you wanna buy a house, chances are you're gonna have to buy a house that already exists. Now, obviously this is very good for people who have a home that they want to sell because they can get a great price, they don't have a lot of competition, but it's not good for somebody who's in the market to buy a home, particularly if it's your first home. So a lot of people who might like to buy a home but can't afford it, even with rock bottom interest rates, are renting instead, which is why rents are also surging at a record pace. Yet despite double digit year over year rent increases in reality, and despite the 23% year-over-year increase in home prices, according to the government, when they calculate the CPI, which supposedly includes 33% rent, the government is saying that year-over-year rent is just is up just 2.5%. Well, how does the government manufacture this? I mean, how do they do this magic trick of converting 23% increases in home prices and I don't know, 11, 12% increases in rents. How do they make all that disappear? 
and instead make 2.5% increase, replace that? Well, through the magic of owner's equivalent rent, again, I've talked about it, and it's just another way that the government rigs the CPI so that we don't actually see just how bad inflation actually is. But one place where you can see how bad inflation is is import-export prices. We got those numbers for July on Friday, and it was a mixed bag because import prices came in with a smaller than expected increase. And that followed a pretty big increase in the prior month. In June, import prices rose 1%. And in fact, Friday, they revised that increase to 1.1%, so a little bit higher. The consensus for July was for a 0.6% increase in import prices. Again, that's a big jump in a single month. But we only saw a 0.3% rise in import prices. So not nearly as bad as we thought. And in fact, the year-over-year increase in import prices was 10.2%. That was a reduction of the 11.3% year-over-year increase that consumers were paying as of last month and below the 10.7% year-over-year increase that was expected. But again, if you compare this number to the year-over-year increase in consumer prices, the import price number is almost twice what the CPI is. Now, of course, the CPI includes more services, and these import prices are mainly dealing with goods. But even if you strip out the services, the goods component of the CPI is not nearly as high as the import prices. And that's because the import prices aren't adjusted. The government is actually reporting the price of the stuff that we're importing. And those prices are up 10.2% year over year. That is double digit inflation. That is an honest number because they're just taking the prices and seeing how much higher they are. They're not adjusting them. They're not using substitution or hedonics or the stuff like that that goes into the CPI. Now, why does the government manipulate the CPI but not the import prices? Well, because the Fed is not making policy based on import prices. The government is not reporting this as some indication of our cost of living. Social Security colas, capital gains taxes, are not indexed to import prices. So the government doesn't have a vested interest to rig this. Plus, they're looking for accurate information. They're trying to measure the price of what we're importing. And so they use the actual numbers. And so these numbers are a much better indicator of what's actually happening to prices than what the government is pretending is happening to prices when you look at the official measures like the Consumer Price Index. But where the numbers are really bad is when it comes to our export prices. Now, of course, when it comes to trade, it is, in theory, a good thing that our export prices are going up because that's the stuff we're exporting. So we want to get more. But the real way to win on your exports is not when the price of your exports is going up. It's when the quantity of your exports are going up. Because if the price of your exports are going up, your exports may become uncompetitive and you may actually see a reduction. So what's really good is if you 
can export a lot more and maybe even cut the prices, the unit prices, because you're more efficient, but then make it up on volume and have bigger exports. The consensus was for a 0.8% gain in export prices following the 1.2% jump in June. Well, instead, we got a 1.3% increase in export prices for July. Again, these are the prices that foreigners are paying for what we're exporting. So we're earning those higher prices, which again, in the short run is good, but in the long run, it may not be if foreigners end up substituting other goods because maybe prices are not going up as fast on goods that are being produced in other countries. And certainly today's numbers indicate that because our import prices only went up 0.3 while our export prices went up 1.3. That suggests that inflation inside the United States is worse than it is outside the United States. But it also means that we're becoming less competitive. But because we currently import so much more then we export, even though our export prices are rising faster than our import prices, our trade deficit is still going up. That's because the increases in import prices apply to a much larger dollar amount than the increases in export prices do. So the net effect is that we still have a rising trade deficit. That is going to keep going up. But look at the year-over-year increase in export prices. In June, that year-over-year increase was 16.8. That was revised up to 16.9. The consensus was for a drop to 16.6. Instead, we have an increase of 17.2% year-over-year increase in the cost of goods that we are exporting. That is an all-time record high. In fact, if you look at the export numbers for all of 2021 thus far. Export prices are already up by 13.5% so far this year in seven months. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. If you annualize that out, it comes to 23%. So if we keep up this pace for the entirety of the year, our export prices will have risen by 23%. Now, I don't think we're actually going to keep up this pace. So my expectation is for the year to come in slightly below 20%. But still, it will be, I think, an all-time record high as far as the increase in the cost of our exports. In fact, here are the numbers thus far for 2021. Starting in January, 
prices rose by 2.7% in one month. That's got to be an all-time record for a single-month increase. But 2.7% January, followed by 1.6% February, 2.5% gain in March, 1.2% in April, 2.3% in May, 1.2% in June, and now 1.3% in July. Every single month, prices gained by more than 1%. And in two months, they gained more than 2%. In fact, in January, we came close to 3%. These are monthly increases. Remember, according to the Fed, its target is 2% inflation or slightly above. Prices are rising by 2% every two months. They're 12 months of the year. We are so far beyond the Fed's target. Now, I know a lot of people might say, well, who cares? Because again, these are the prices of the stuff we're exporting. Americans don't pay these prices. Foreigners pay these prices. Well, that's true. And foreigners may decide to buy less from us, given the fact that we're raising prices so much. But think about this logically. These numbers reflect domestic production costs. It's costing American companies a lot more to make stuff. And so they're passing on their higher costs to their customers. It's not like American companies now have windfall profits that were just jacking up prices and all the increases just dropping to the bottom line. It's not. They're trying to offset the increases in production costs. Well, if U.S. companies are spending a lot more money to produce stuff that they export, doesn't it stand to reason that U.S. companies are experiencing similar cost pressures on the stuff they don't export? Remember, it's the same companies. They're making some stuff and exporting it, and they're making some stuff and they're selling it domestically. So if the cost of producing for exports is soaring, wouldn't the cost for producing for domestic consumption also be soaring? Sure, it's the same companies. It's the same workers that are making stuff to export, that are making stuff not to export. It's the same raw materials that go into the production process. So this is a better indication of what's actually happening to production costs and prices in the United States than the CPI. Now, of course, the compilation of what we export is different than what we don't export. And in fact, if you look at these numbers, especially the numbers early in the year, like January, what was really driving the gains was increases in raw materials, industrial metals, agricultural products. And so the percentage that those products make of our exports is a larger percentage of overall domestic consumption. So I think that the cost for what is being produced and not exported are probably up a bit less than the cost for our exports. But I think this number, this 23% annualized number, which is how hot numbers are coming in this year, I think that number is probably closer to the reality of the increase in the cost of living in the United States than is the CPI, which on a year-over-year basis is what, in the five, five and a half percent range, I forget the exact number. But also what should trouble a lot of people, you know, when you look over the compilation 
of our exports and see just what we're exporting versus what we're importing. We export a lot of stuff that we just pull out of the ground or that we grow from the ground. We export raw materials, stuff that's here naturally in the land, and we import a lot of finished products. I mean, really, if you just look through the list, we look like a third world nation. Once upon a time in America, we were the big manufacturing powerhouse. We made all the stuff that we now import. What we do now is we export the raw materials so that we can import the finished goods that we no longer have the industrial capacity to produce ourselves. This is a huge sign of a decline in the power of the American economy, the productivity of the American economy, and ultimately it is gonna usher in a tremendous decline in the standard of living of Americans. I know from experience when you're running a small business, it's those HR issues that can really kill you. You've got everything from wrongful termination lawsuits, discrimination, sexual harassment, minimum wage requirements, all sorts of labor regulations. And you know, those HR manager salaries, they ain't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. That's where Bambi comes in. That's Bambi spelled B-A-M-B-E-E. Bambi was created especially for small business owners. You get a dedicated HR manager who will craft your own HR policy and maintain your compliance and do it all for just $99 a month. So let Bambi enable you to change HR from being one of your biggest liabilities to one of your biggest strengths. Your dedicated HR manager will be available by phone, email, or real-time chat for anything from onboarding to terminations. They will customize your policies to fit your business. And they'll even help you manage your employees day to day. And they're gonna do it all for just $99 a month. And the best part, it's month to month, no hidden fees. You can cancel any time, so you might as well give it a try. Just go to Bambi.com slash gold right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash gold, spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com slash gold. Once again, we got the perverse reaction in the markets, both in the foreign exchange market and in the gold market, you saw a surge in the US dollar. You saw a drop in the price of gold following these numbers. Because again, these numbers were worse than expected on inflation. And so traders, the minute they see that, the algorithms kick into their trading programs, higher inflation, that means the Fed is going to be incentivized to accelerate the tightening process. Interest rate hikes are going to come somewhat sooner. The taper is going to start earlier. And therefore, we need to sell gold and we need to buy the dollar. All of this, of course, completely misses the point that the Fed isn't going to really tighten at all. In fact, I think this is going to be the first tightening cycle that doesn't involve a single rate hike. The whole of this tightening cycle is going to be talk. None of it is going to be action. Now, we may, in fact, start the taper. That may be the only thing that the Fed does is reduce for a while 
its monthly purchases of U.S. Treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. But they're not going to stop buying Treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. QE is never going to end. What they may be able to do, if they can even pull off this, which is not even a certainty, but what they may be able to do is reduce the rate at which they are monetizing U.S. government debt for a number of months so that QE gets smaller but never stops and they will never get to the point where they actually can reduce their balance sheet. So in other words, the Fed's balance sheet will continue to grow. We're not going to have a temporary period of time like we did under the Trump administration where the Fed was actually able to reduce its $4.5 trillion balance sheet below $4 trillion. I mean, it's now above $8.25 trillion, and it's going to continue to go up forever. The only thing the Fed may be able to do is for a short period of time slightly reduce the monthly rate of increase. But just like the tightening cycle that happened prior to COVID, this one is going to get cut short. Remember, Janet Yellen always promised that interest rates were going to be normalized following that long period of 0% interest rates. And I always said that that was never going to happen, that even if the Fed started the rate normalization journey, it would never complete it. And in fact, I still think it would have been one and done, meaning the first quarter point rate hike that Yellen was able to pull off after years and years of procrastination, that that would have also been the last rate hike. Because remember, we never got the second quarter point rate hike until after Donald Trump won the presidential election and shocked everybody. And once Trump won, we had a rip-roaring stock market and we had all sorts of optimism among small businesses. And it was in that environment of this potentially booming economy with fiscal stimulus and a soaring stock market that enabled Yellen and then Powell to slip through a few more rate hikes until they finally had to stop the process when we got to two and a half percent because under the weight of such a heavy increase, the economy buckled. The stock market tanked. We had the worst December since the Great Depression. And then the Fed had to reverse course. They started cutting rates. If you recall, they said it was a mid-course correction. They pretended that after the mid-course correction, they would resume the rate hikes on the road to normalization. I was the only one at the time, again, who said, no, it's not a mid-course correction. The tightening cycle is over. The next stop is zero. And of course, that is exactly what happened. And not only did they go back to zero, but they reversed the quantitative tightening and they went back to quantitative easing and the balance sheet quickly soared beyond the previous peak and now it's more than double that peak. Well, I think this tightening cycle is going to be even shorter and the Fed is going to accomplish even less. I think that they will never even complete the taper. They may start it, but they won't complete it, meaning they'll never get to a point where they stop expanding the balance sheet and at some point they will ramp it back up again with a new QE program and the rate at which the Fed is monetizing the balance sheet in the future will exceed the rate at which it's monetizing it now. And when it comes to rate hikes, they're never going to happen. 
I think we're stuck at zero because right now the Fed is claiming that the first rate hike is going to come maybe at the end of 2022 and they're going to start the normalization process in 2023. Well, the problem is before we get to the end of 2022 or 2023, the economy will either already be back in recession or teetering on the verge of recession, which means those rate hikes aren't going to happen. They're going to be called off by the economic data. And so the Fed is pretending we're going to get to some kind of promised land that we're never going to reach because on the journey, something is going to happen and the Fed's going to be back at zero or still at zero and increasing quantitative easing to try to fight off the recession or prop up a sagging stock market. Because that's the other thing that can happen between now and the end of 2022, early 2023, is the stock market starts to fall, threatening to fall into bear market territory. The Fed can't allow that to happen. They can't allow a reverse wealth effect. They've already built a recovery on the foundation of an asset bubble, so they can't let the asset bubble deflate without the recovery deflating along with it. The key is when are the markets going to figure that out and start ignoring this worse than expected inflation data and assuming that it's going to force the Fed into a tightening mode sooner than later when the data is actually irrelevant, the Fed is not going to fight inflation. And in reality, even if the Fed tried to fight inflation, it would lose. Inflation would win. And so increasing in inflation Inflation numbers that are worse than expected are good for gold and they're bad for dollar. It doesn't mean that the Fed is going to get tough and successfully fight inflation. These numbers are an indication that inflation is winning and that the Fed is never going to get tough. It is a 98-pound weakling when it comes to fighting inflation. And we got more evidence of the toll that inflation is exacting on consumers when we got the consumer sentiment numbers for August, these numbers were released yesterday on Friday, and the consensus was for consumer sentiment to improve. The prior month, it was at 81.2. The expectation was for an increase to 81.4. Instead of going up, it went down. In fact, it collapsed all the way down to 70.2. That was a big shocker for the markets. The financial media is trying to blame this on the resurgence of COVID, the Delta variant. That is why consumers are supposedly a bit nervous. I don't think it's the Delta variant. I think it's rising prices. I think that's why sentiment is down is because prices are up. I mean, we're measuring consumer sentiment. And if every time consumers go to the supermarket or the gas station or pay their bills and everything is getting more expensive, that's certainly going to dampen your sentiment. Now, of course, when these numbers came out, again, what was the reaction? We had a sharp sell-off in the dollar and a big rise in the price of gold, although not that big. Gold was up about $25 on the day, but still gold rose, the dollar fell, Bonds rose, right? Long-term yields fell. Why? Well, this bad number supposedly 
will push back tightening because, oh, the consumer is worried. If the consumer is worried, maybe they're not going to spend as much. If they're not going to spend as much, the economy is going to slow. And if the economy is going to slow, how is the Fed supposed to tap on the brakes in a slowing economy? And so these numbers were bullish for gold and bearish for the dollar. In fact, Gold ended up closing positive on the week. It was up about 20 bucks or so on the week. And that's despite starting the week with a $100 sell-off on Monday, really Sunday night, U.S. time. But still, that big sell-off, we completely recouped all of those losses and ended the week positive. But the catalyst for getting gold into positive territory on the week was this weaker-than-expected consumer sentiment number. It also is responsible for the dollar index, which had put in a pretty big increase earlier in the week. The dollar index ending the week at 92.52, down 0.51. That was a negative close on the week. So both the U.S. dollar and gold having potential reversals where the U.S. dollar index took out the previous week's high and closed lower on the week and gold took out the previous week's low and closed higher. In fact, gold closed just under 1780 an ounce. I think 1779.70 was the final print. But think about this. If consumer sentiment is falling because prices are rising, if it's high inflation that's really got consumers down, If these numbers cause the Fed to delay tightening because it's worried that falling consumer sentiment is bad for the economy, and so it delays the taper or delays the rate hikes, that means it continues creating inflation. The longer the Fed keeps its current monetary policy intact without reducing it, the more upward pressure we put on prices. So if the Fed reacts to falling consumer sentiment by continuing the monetary policy that is driving the inflation that is responsible for the drop in consumer sentiment, consumer sentiment is going to drop even further. So in other words, this is a catch-22. No matter what the Fed does, consumer sentiment is going to continue to fall because if it reacts to consumer sentiment by creating more inflation, And if inflation is what is causing the drop in consumer sentiment, the Fed's response to a weak consumer sentiment number will make the sentiment even weaker, which is why I've been talking about the fact that the Fed is in a box. It can't fight inflation. All it can do is create more of it. And since it's inflation, that's the problem. You don't solve a problem by making the problem worse. This is the reality that the markets still haven't come to terms with. But that day of awakening is coming. When it's going to happen, I don't know for sure, but it is coming and you had better be prepared. I want to finish up today's podcast, though, by looking back 50 years because tomorrow, Sunday, August 15th, will mark 50 years since Nixon took the U.S. and by extension, the world off the gold standard. It was 50 years ago tomorrow 
that Richard Nixon, the then president of the United States, interrupted Bonanza, I think at the time the most popular TV show, to announce to the world that we were temporarily suspending the gold standard. Again, Nixon said temporary. When Nixon took us off the gold standard at that time, it was his expectation that we would return to the gold standard once the emergency that resulted in us going off the gold standard was over. Now, what was the emergency? Well, the emergency was we were losing all of our gold because back then in 1971, U.S. dollars were gold and Federal Reserve notes, the paper dollars that everybody carried around, those were in effect IOUs for dollars. The dollars were the gold that we had at Fort Knox and we were promising to deliver those dollars and a dollar equaled a weight of gold. So $35 was one ounce of gold. And so if you had $35 or 35 Federal Reserve notes and you were foreign, you could take those 35 Federal Reserve notes and turn them in for $1, meaning an ounce of gold. That was the price of gold. That's where it had been ever since President Roosevelt devalued the dollar back in 1934 when prior to the Roosevelt devaluation, gold was $20.67 an ounce. And following the devaluation, the price of gold rose to $35 an ounce, meaning the value of those paper claims or the dollar in relation to gold had been reduced. And that was one of the ways that Roosevelt tried to get us out of the depression was by depreciating the value of the dollar. But the official gold price stood at $35 an ounce in 1971 when Richard Nixon temporarily took us off the gold standard. Now, why, again, did this happen? Because we were losing our gold, because our creditors knew that the dollar was overvalued, that gold was too cheap. We had printed too much money during the 1960s because that was the years where we had big deficits under Lyndon Johnson, Jack Kennedy. We had the Great Society programs. Medicare came in. We had the war in Vietnam. We had the space race. We had the war on poverty, all kinds of spending that was very aggressive by the standards of the time. I mean, mild compared to the stuff we're doing today, but we were printing a lot of money and the price of gold was staying at $35 an ounce. Given all the money we were printing, the price of gold should have been going up, but it was artificially held at 35. And so our creditors realized that the dollar was overvalued, gold was undervalued, and they were taking their IOUs and cashing them in, and that was causing a gold drain. And so this put the U.S. at risk of losing all of its gold. And so in order to stop the outflow of gold, we closed the gold window. Now, in effect, this really amounted to a default because we had always promised the world to deliver gold. In effect, Federal Reserve notes, right? If you look at your paper bill, it says Federal Reserve note. A note is an IOU. It is a promise to pay. What did we promise to pay? We promised to pay gold. And then we told our note holders, we're not going to pay you the gold that we promised to pay you. In other words, it was a default. It's just like defaulting on a bond. You're not going to pay what you promised to pay. 
So when everybody talks about the fact that the U.S. government has never defaulted on a liability, that's wrong. We had a liability to pay gold and we defaulted and paid nothing. Now, the way you know that the move was intended to be temporary was that after Nixon closed the gold window and when nobody could actually get any real dollars for their Federal Reserve notes, Nixon then devalued the dollar twice relative to gold. First in December of 1971, Nixon raised the official gold price from $35 an ounce to $38 an ounce. And then he devalued again in February of 1973, raising the official price of gold to $42.22. I mean, why the 22 cents? I've got no idea, but 42.22 was the price. I mean, I don't know, maybe it was maybe Room 222, which was a popular TV series, I think, back then. Maybe the president was a fan. Who the hell knows? But 42.22 was the new official gold price. The reason that Nixon was doing this is he was hoping to find a price at which the market could stabilize and there would not be a loss of gold and we could go back on the gold standard. But this devaluation was far too small and Nixon realized it, which is why there were no future devaluations and the window that was temporarily closed has remained shut for the last 50 years. Because if you think about it, there was a lot of inflation during the 1970s. Imagine how much higher the price of gold would have had to have risen to keep pace. In fact, there was a lot of inflation in the 1960s. There had been a lot of inflation in the United States since the introduction of the Federal Reserve in 1913, yet the price of gold had remained the same from 1934. So clearly, gold was underpriced, and it was even more underpriced in 1971, given the big increase in inflation that we had during the 1960s. So Nixon really had two choices. He could have devalued the dollar far more substantially than what he did. He could have really brought the gold price up to what it needed to be, given how much inflation had been created. I'm sure that gold price would have had to have been north of $100 an ounce, even in 1971. But that was not something that Nixon wanted to do. That would have been very embarrassing to admit that the U.S. dollar had lost that much of its value relative to gold. Now, the other alternative, which would have been an alternative that I would have preferred, would have been to have deflated the bubble, meaning massive cuts to government spending, a contraction in the money supply, right? Tight money that would have deflated bubbles would have caused prices to come back down consistent with $35 gold. So either the price of gold had to go way up or the price of everything else had to come way down, but that would have been the only way to stay on the gold standard without an official devaluation and stopping the flow of gold out of the United States. But neither of those choices was politically popular. So Nixon did the expedient thing and just suspended the gold ceiling and just suspended convertibility of Federal Reserve notes to gold, closed the window, and that was what he thought was a get-out-of-jail-free card because now he didn't have to make either of those difficult choices. 
They just kicked the can down the road and we've been kicking it for the last 50 years because just like Nixon, no presidents want to make those decisions. Now, of course, once we went off the gold standard, inflation accelerated even further because instead of putting an end to those policies, which staying on the gold standard would have required, by leaving the gold standard, those policies were accelerated and we had the stagflation of the 1970s. And, you know, it's interesting to point out that both the Secretary of the Treasury and the Federal Reserve in hearings in 1968 before the U.S. Senate Banking Committee on the potential for going off the gold standard, both of those guys testified that going off the gold standard would be good for the dollar, the dollar would gain value, and gold would sink. They argued that gold was overvalued and it was its link to the dollar that was the reason it was overvalued. And if we severed the link, the gold would sink, the dollar would soar when it was no longer weighed down by gold, and inflation would be brought under control. The only person really that testified the opposite was my father, who was an insurance agent, who also testified, and he testified correctly that a dollar backed by nothing would be worth a lot less than a dollar backed by gold. He warned that if we went off the gold standard, inflation would soar, the price of gold would soar, and my father's testimony is the only testimony that stood the test of time. And in fact, one of the big problems we had in the 1970s was the Arab oil embargo, and a lot of people like to blame the high inflation of the 1970s on OPEC for jacking up the price of oil. But OPEC didn't jack up the price of oil we jacked down the value of the dollar that we were using to buy oil. In 1970, a barrel of oil cost just under $3. That was it. By 1980, at its peak, we were paying $39 for a barrel of oil. So a 13-fold increase in the price of oil in one decade. Now, a lot of people think, you see, the Arabs, they really stuck it to us. They jacked up the price of oil. Well, that really isn't the story because what did we do? We reduced the value of what we were giving OPEC in exchange for their oil because in 1970, we were paying for oil with gold. In 1980, we were paying for it in paper. There's a big difference. So in 1970, when gold was $35 an ounce and oil was just under $3 a barrel, one ounce of gold bought 11.7 barrels of oil. Now, fast forward to 1980, gold prices rose as high as $850 an ounce. Now, at $850, even with $39 a barrel oil, which was the highest price again that oil hit, In 1980, one ounce of gold bought 21.8 barrels of oil. In other words, during that 10-year period of time where the dollar price of a barrel of oil increased 13x, the gold price of a barrel of oil was actually cut in half. In other words, oil prices were actually going down. OPEC was getting less gold for their oil in 1980 than they were in 1970. So again, it wasn't that OPEC raised their prices. We lowered the value of the money that we were using to buy their oil. So we were the ones that broke the contract. We tried to buy 
valuable oil with worthless paper and OPEC didn't want to cooperate. Hey, if you're not going to pay us in real money, if you're going to devalue the dollar, well, then we need more dollars for our oil. And that's exactly what happened. So think about it this way. If you saved real money, if you understood and could read the writing on the wall and you kept your savings in gold during that 10-year period, you saw your purchasing power double because you could buy twice as much oil in 1980 as you could in 1970 despite the nominal price gain. But if you held your money in U.S. currency during that 10-year period, you lost 92.4% of your purchasing power in oil, meaning that you could only buy 7.6% as much oil in 1980 with a dollar as you could in 1970. Now, of course, interest rates were very high in the 70s. Let's assume that you put your dollars in the bank and you earned enough interest so that you had twice as many dollars in 1980 as you had in 1970, well, you still lost 85% of your purchasing power, even with the compounding effect of high interest, because you could only buy 15% as much oil in 1980, even though you had twice as many dollars. So the real way to preserve your purchasing power was to store your savings in gold. And the reason that we saw such a big move up in the price of gold relative to the price of oil was because the price of gold was artificially suppressed. It was too cheap in 1970 and the pendulum swung obviously a little bit too far in the other direction. In 1980, it was too expensive and so it kind of settled out in the middle later in that decade. The same thing I think is gonna happen again. I think gold is too cheap and therefore I think people that store their purchasing power in gold will not only preserve it, but it will actually be enhanced because again, I expect this pendulum to swing too far. We're gonna go from undervalued gold to overvalued gold. And so in remembrance of Nixon's poor decision to take the US and the world off the gold standard 50 years ago and to make it easier for the listeners of my podcast to buy some gold, Shift Gold is holding a special. We're gonna give everybody $50 off on a purchase of $5,000 or more of gold. And given how low our markups are, $50 off on a $5,000 purchase is a sizable reduction in the markup that that we charge. So if you want to get this deal, $50 off on a $5,000 purchase, contact Shift Gold and give them the promotion code Nixon. But also, if I am right on how big this gold move is going to be, the move in the gold mining stocks is going to be even bigger because as much as gold itself is currently undervalued, the gold mining stocks are even more undervalued. And so when this market turns, those stocks have even more room to run. In fact, I think the final bubble is gonna be the bubble in gold stocks. And there's an old saying, there's no rush like a gold rush, especially when that rush is into gold mining stocks. So you wanna make sure that you're positioned in these stocks before the herd finally wakes up to what we know. And again, I think the best way to position yourself for the coming boom in mining stocks 
is to invest in either the Euro-Pacific Gold Fund, which you can buy through the reps at Euro-Pacific Capital, Euro-Pacific Asset Management, or you can even buy it at your local discount broker, or to open up a separately managed account here at Euro-Pacific Asset Management for Adrian Day to manage a customized portfolio of mining stocks. So in remembrance of what happened 50 years ago, don't want to call it you know, an anniversary because generally an anniversary is a celebration of something good. We definitely don't want to celebrate this. We want to remember it you know, the way we remember Pearl Harbor, except 50 years ago, the U.S. government bombed our monetary system and our economy. And those who do not remember history are doomed to repeat it. If you don't remember the decade of the 1970s that followed this decision, then you are going to repeat the losses that millions of Americans endured throughout that decade because they had no idea the significance of what Nixon did. Well, 50 years ago, Nixon took the U.S. off the gold standard. Soon, the world is going to go off the dollar standard and you need to be prepared and you need to be prepared by divesting yourself of U.S. dollars by buying gold, buying silver, buying the miners and building a portfolio of non-U.S. dollar stocks because those portfolios also worked very well during the 1970s. The dollar collapsed relative to foreign currencies. The Swiss franc went from 25 cents to 75 cents. The Japanese yen, you went from being able to buy 360 yen to fewer than 150. The Deutschmark went to from four to one where the dollar could buy you four Deutschmarks to the dollar buying maybe one and a half. So people who invested in foreign stocks did great in the 1970s, while people who remained invested in U.S. stocks had a lost decade. Of course, stocks did great in the 1960s, which lulled people into a false sense of complacency, but they held on throughout the 70s and inflation wiped them out. Well, the stock market is far more overvalued today in the U.S., than it was as a result of the boom of the 1960s. And I think Americans that continue to hold on to these overvalued U.S. portfolios will suffer even more real losses to an even worse bout of inflation now than what we had back then. So again, divest your entire portfolio and move into a foreign portfolio. Talk to your representative at Europe Pacific Capital, Europe Pacific Asset Management. If you don't already have an account, set one up and act as quickly as you can to inflation-proof your portfolio.